why in general in Virginia do we have this deference to state government over local authority? If we think that local officials are closer to their communities, that they know better what communities need. The Dillon Rule has long been a tool in Virginia for keeping cities from getting flexibility and authority to, to govern themselves as they want because the state government has always been more conservative than the cities. The, the Dillon Rule is one of those Jim Crow era institutions that has been designed to prevent city governments from addressing the very real needs of urban areas. Indeed, when, when Virginia last redid our constitution in 1971 and wrote the first race-blind constitution in Virginia history, the first one that didn't name whites and blacks explicitly, there was a deep conversation about that time about whether we would also shift away from the Dillon Rule because it was understood that the Dillon Rule was a huge part of what was keeping urban communities from raising their taxes to build better schools and pay their teachers more. And it was left on the cutting room floor. Virginia was not ready to take that step at that time. Hey everybody, it's Jim. Uh, we had an interesting conversation this week. Uh, Jonathan Keith and I had Sally Hudson on and she's the current 57th district delegate in Virginia. She's running for 11th district, but that's not why we had her. We had her because we saw her in a, a story in the Virginia Mercury recently, or Keith did, and it was talking about the land value tax, which is something that we had not heard about. And it was interesting and curious and a little bit wonky conversation, but we went into a whole lot of stuff that talked about zoning and land value taxes and property taxes and a lot about real estate. So it was a really good, really fun, somewhat wonky conversation that we hope you enjoy. So Keith, good morning. Morning, Jim. Jonathan, Jonathan how are you? Good morning. What are we talking about today? I, you know, I, I got to say, Jim, I got a, uh, I'd like to throw out a topic we haven't, I've never heard discussed in a real estate environment. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my brother sent me an email and an article from the Virginia Mercury that was outlining a tax proposal that was made in Virginia last year, allowing or uh, proposing that the city of Charlottesville be allowed to tax land value separately and in a split rate from the improvements that are on those lands. So um, read the article, thought it was fascinating, had never heard anyone discussing it and started doing some research into it. And it turns out that uh, the delegate who had proposed the bill in the Virginia House uh, was Sally Hudson, who represents our area. And so I asked Sally if she would come in and speak with us and talk today about it. Um, Sally, welcome to Sweat the Details. Good morning. Glad to be here. Really appreciate you you coming in. And and if I can, you know, your background is, is pure economics. Your BA and, and PhD are both uh, econ backgrounds. So for you, the land tax, I think, probably starts with a with a financial piece. But I just wanted to ask if you can explain to everybody land value tax um, and split rate tax versus our current systems that we have in Virginia and, and how this plays out. Sure. So right now, our property tax base is really heavily tilted toward the improvements on the land. In Charlottesville City, I think about 70% of the total of vest value, assessed value is structures, and about 30% of it is the land. But we all understand conceptually that it's the combination of the two that really gives a uh, place value. And we also know that there's lots of pockets inside the city that are underdeveloped and vacant that 
could be opportunities for more density and housing opportunities that are just sitting undeveloped. And so the question is, what do we do about that? What tools do we have to encourage people to develop those relatively vacant lots into useful structures? And the challenge is that right now, our property tax system pretty heavily disincentivizes improving the value of the land because you're going to pay a lot more taxes on that property. And so what some communities have started doing is allowing the city to set separate tax rates for the value of the underlying land and then the structures that sit on top. And when you do that, cities that make that shift overwhelmingly find that the tax rate on the land ends up being relatively lower and the tax rate on the structures ends up being higher and that that flexibility gives us a way of not just incentivizing more development but also giving people who live in relatively modest homes on really high value land a break on the property taxes that are burning up their pocketbooks. So can the can the locality enact can can the city of Charlottesville or the county of Albemarle or, or whatever can the locality enact that themselves or do they need something from the state to to, change, to allow them to change that? The city can't do this themselves, and that's exactly why I had to get involved. So in Virginia, the state code lays out a pretty standard set of taxing tools for each community, and local governments and cities and counties have to color inside of those lines. And in general, I think that local governments need more flexibility when it comes to which taxing tools will work best for them to raise the revenue they need to fund public services, because different communities have different potential sources of revenue generation. There are some places with a really strong retail tax base, and so a sales tax is something that you can meaningfully use to recover funds to pay for schools and, and city staff. There are some places where they have a lot of property value. There are some places where the buildings are very valuable, but the, the land may be less so or, or vice versa. And so in, in general, I think that communities deserve more tools. And in Virginia, if you want more flexibility, you have to request it explicitly from the state because our state code tries to make everything as even as possible across the localities. And that's the, the Dillon rule that we, we refer to all the time? It's sort of the Dillon rule. So Technically, the Dillon rule is about what happens when the state code is silent on an issue. Okay. So the Dillon rule is the default about who has the power when authority is not specified. In this case, the authorities are specified very clearly by the state. This is the tax toolbox that each community has. And so if you want to add a new tool to that kit, you have to go get that authority from the state. Gotcha. So, so localities have right now the ability to defer taxes um, in certain circumstances. So I know many counties offer land use tax um, programs where they incentivize retaining agricultural land and, and reduce the taxes for farmers so that there's not a incentive to develop. This is what you're proposing is the exact opposite. So increasing, the idea would be that the city would then have the opportunity to increase the tax, tax rate on land decrease the tax rate on improvements and incentivize somebody to actually turn barren land into a higher, highest and best use. Is that basically the idea? That, that's one way of thinking about it. And what we've seen in communities that have made the switch is that what that typically means is that for a lot of homeowners, their overall tax bill goes down and it shifts more of the, the total revenue assessed for the community onto these high value land parcels that are, are not yet developed. 
Is 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 this a more of a city tax versus a county tax? And and the follow up to that would be, if it is, and I have no idea if it is yet, would that be create competition between like the city of Charlottesville? There's ten square miles where we're trying to encourage more density and development, versus the county of Albemarle with 800 plus square miles, you know, 95% of which is designated rural. So in principle, any community could use this. The very specific bill that I carried would have only applied to the city. It would have added Charlottesville City to the list of cities across Virginia that currently have this taxing authority. And they're cities that are built a lot like we are. It's, it's Richmond, it's Roanoke, it's Pocosin, and then Fairfax City. These are landlocked cities where they don't have space to spread into a development area or to expand a growth boundary. And they're trying to figure out what do we do to incentivize development on the pockets of land that are locked up inside of our city centers. So you started by saying this was was in part um, hopefully to encourage residential development, more high density development down towards an urban area. But is there, there's no differentiation in the, in the way the tax works between whether it's office buildings or retail or residential, correct? I mean, it's, it's, it's purely an improvement value question and land value question. It's not a, it's not a use case at all. Totally. And, and let me say at the top that I am not wedded to this idea. Sure. I, I think that this is exactly the conversation that should be going on in the community with the kind of level of depth that you all are doing in sweating the details. This is this idea is something that was first brought to me by um, the chair of our planning commission, Lyle Sol Yates, because he had seen other communities that had done this. And in Virginia, since our general assembly is so part time, we only get one bite at the apple each year to request taxing authority. And since I generally err on the side of giving cities more flexibility so that we can have these kinds of good nuanced conversations at home instead of in the warp speed of the General Assembly where everything flies too fast and may not fit everyone's needs, I thought this seems like a reasonable enough idea and other communities in Virginia already have this option. Why not go work to get Charlottesville the legal authority and then come back and have a conversation about whether or not it makes sense. Now, let's be clear, this bill didn't pass. And so this is not a tool that is currently in our toolkit. It's not like this conversation is coming to a city council meeting near you. But if it passes at the General Assembly, then the city would have to vote, you know, have the conversation, then vote on whether to enact it or not. Totally. And they wouldn't have to at all. No, right. Nothing would force them to act on this authority. But I think that it's one of the things that I have discovered in my four years of serving in the House is there's sort of a chicken egg problem in raising conversations like this at the local level, which is do you mobilize all of the political energy to decide that you definitely want something for sure? And then you go request the legal authority. And that process can take years. Or if you have the option in a relatively low key way of getting the legal authority because there's already a framework in place, because there's already a list of cities, could we add our city to that? Then it makes the conversation more real. And then when you come back, people are more interested in it. We're doing actually exactly what is the consequence of of carrying that kind of legislation. So I I think it's sort of a, it's a question of style, whether you prefer to go state authority first or or city, um, the city conversation. But I think what I have found is that if you go the other way, the process can take a lot longer. And so, so sometimes it makes sense to go this way. So Sally, you said there are four, four cities right now that have this taxing authority, mm-hmm. but they have not yet enacted it even with the authority. So my question is, you know, why, if we're proposing, why do we not just, why are there restrictions at the state level as to 
which localities have which authorities and which don't. Why is this not a question of if we're going to allow it throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia, we allow it, and if we're not, we don't? If is there a reason for? I mean, if, yes. if it's up if it's up to the if it's up to each municipality anyway, yep. once they get the authority and nobody's taken advantage of it yet, why are we not just doing this as a blanket shift? You are asking the deep historical money question about right. taxing authority <laughs> in Virginia. So this gets back to your question, Jim, about, about the Dillon rule. Why in general in Virginia do we have this deference to state government over local authority? If we think that local officials are closer to their communities, that they know better what communities need, the Dillon Rule has long been a tool in Virginia for keeping cities from getting flexibility and authority to, to govern themselves as they want because the state government has always been more conservative than the cities. The, the Dillon Rule is one of those Jim Crow era institutions that has been designed to prevent city governments from addressing the very real needs of urban areas. Indeed, when, when Virginia last redid our constitution in 1971 and wrote the first race-blind constitution in Virginia history, the first one that didn't name whites and blacks explicitly. There was a deep conversation about that time about whether we would also shift away from the Dillon Rule because it was understood that the Dillon Rule was a huge part of what was keeping urban communities from raising their taxes to build better schools and pay their teachers more. And it was left on the cutting room floor. Virginia was not ready to take that step at that time. And Charlottesville actually is really blessed with, with deep legal historical scholars who can talk to you about what it was like being in the room at the time. We have a professor emeritus on the faculty at UVA Law, A.E. Dick Howard, he lives over on Park Street, who at the time, now more than 50 years ago, was the junior drafting attorney for that constitution. He, he was the, the junior guy in the room actually doing all the heavy work, picking up the pen and, and revising all the drafts. And he'll talk to you about the history of that negotiation. And at the time, Virginia was not ready to say, we trust cities to govern themselves. Because the state of Virginia is always gonna be more conservative than the most progressive cities. And that has really deep consequences for the, the local, local governments in Virginia. If you think about say the other, the other taxing authority that we've been trying to secure for the city and the county, the sales tax for school construction and renovation. There are other communities like Farmville in Prince Edward, which is the home of the Moton School walkout, the, the Virginia's sure. part of the Brown versus Board desegregation mm -hmm. case that have been working for literally decades to get local taxing authority to renovate their schools, and they have Republican delegates who've been carrying the very same legislation that I have, requesting authority to raise local taxes for school funding that continue to get shot down by the Republican legislature in the House. So if your deep question is, why don't we allow communities more taxing authority in Virginia? But it's longer than a 20-minute conversation, huh? No, it is, but this, this is one of those deep historical struggles between Richmond, which has tended to tilt relatively conservative like the state of Virginia, and the more progressive cities. So a question taken sort of away from Virginia to you know, a wider scope, if you will. Doing the research, found that some, some other countries have enacted land value tax. Pennsylvania, specifically in the, in the U.S., have, has, has enacted it. Where has it been successful and where has it failed? 
It's a great question, and you know, I think that we're still learning on that. As a statistician, I would not say that we have sufficient evidence to say one way or another whether this is a, a ringing endorsement for a plan that, that's well underway. I think right now the shining star in reform for land value taxation is Allentown, Pennsylvania, which recently made this switch uh, toward land value taxes and saw about 90% of the homes in their town had their tax assessments go down in total because the shift moved toward more of these urban pockets of land that were underdeveloped that could have been large apartment buildings. The the city's uh, tax burden shifted toward that kind of development. But this is, is still very much on the leading edge of the conversation. There are communities in, in Michigan, in Minnesota, in California that are having this conversation right now too. So I think we, we have a, a, a very intrepid and innovative planning commission that is trying to think on the front edge of these, of these questions. So when the, when the values go down, uh, how is that? Is it, it, does the budget balance? So and that's exactly the idea, is that with split rate taxation, you can hold the total revenue collected from property taxes the same, but shift the rates so that more of it is collected from land value taxes than from burden. So it's not a way of saying, let's give big government more money. Government can collect the exact same amount of dollars from the city, but redistribute it toward really valuable parcels of land and away from relatively modest homes. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I like your approach of going to, you know, going to the state to get the ability to make the decision. But you're not saying that we're definitely going to go this go this way. I think one of the questions that we always um, talk about here is the challenge with housing affordability, specifically in Charlottesville and Al in Albemarle County. But we'll talk Charlottesville right now. I think one question I would have, and I don't, I know we don't know the answer, but but you know, if you reduce the tax the taxes on residential real estate in, in Charlottesville, I would imagine that that would potentially bump up the prices because, you know, buyers would say, well, now my tax, now the taxes are going down. I can still afford X in a monthly payment so I can pay more. And so that, you know, th that's kind of one of the repercussions that I'm like, oh, geez, wonder, I, I wonder what would happen. I know we don't know the answer to this, but, you know, the, the question is, does it impact housing affordability for single family homes? Um, I know it would potentially bring more um, housing units to the, to the market. Um, but in terms of single family homes, I would, I would wager to guess that it could increase the pricing of homes and reducing afford affordability. Talk me through the last part again. About affordability? Yeah. Why, so suppose you've got somebody who owns their home and their taxes just went down. What happens next? The homeowners, for the homeowners, sure. They're, they're, they're you know, we'll call it their monthly payment um, uh, expense for the home would go down. But the question is when, when there's new buyers coming into the market, they can essentially afford afford more. Um, if the taxes are down, then they can afford a more expensive house. So the question is, does that push housing prices even higher, which is a challenge that we have? Am I well, explaining that correctly, no, I th Keith? I think that makes sense. And I was looking at some numbers just locally. You know, with I moved to Charlottesville in 96, and there was about a 30% differential between the Albemarle County and the city tax rates at the time, and now there's about a 12% difference. 
Um, I think, Jim, I, I found there hasn't been an increase in the city since I moved here. Is that right? That when I was I we're looking at it, and, and within the county, there have been eight since 2008. So, you know, the different municipalities certainly move and shift, and we are hearing less and less topics or less and less questions from buyers of, is it cheaper to live in the city or the county, right? The, the tax rates are now becoming much more evenly. They're almost on parity, and there's no question that that buyers look at that tax rate as part of the expense and part of the calculation of what they're going to be paying. Um, and so when we look at some of the surrounding counties that have lower tax rates, they certainly that always comes up in a conversation about those about those counties. And and when there are when there are municipal issues, and there were some in some of our surrounding counties a few years ago, budget wise, the landowners and the and the buyers were asking questions about what the future tax rates in those those counties were going to be. And I think that's certainly a question. I don't know that it would impact significantly people's perception of their monthly payment, though. I mean, I, I mean, it does. It will impact the payment, but it, I don't know that they're willing to pay twenty thousand more for a house in the city because now their tax rate went down seventy five dollars. Yeah, and and on the flip side, look, we're in a very unique supply constrained market right now, and you know the number of units that are available in Charlottesville, if that went up. You know, more more units available, more housing units available. Potentially, that could could you know, yeah. could could keep keep prices in line. So, I, well, I, I think the sorry, sorry. I think the other question though to that is: Are there other tax shifts that we've allowed jurisdictions that have impacted the growth? So, mm -hmm. in the city of Charlottesville, for instance, we don't have it right now. I don't believe we used to have a deferred tax of seven years if you improved the actual home, imp home improvement value by 20 or 30 percent. There was a there was a you know a baseline for the improvement that you did not pay taxes on the on the new improved home for seven years. Those things were great incentives to bring development into the city of Charlottesville. Are there other places where we've been using taxes to incentivize the right growth models? Is that something that that other and I and I don't when I say we I mean I don't mean Charlottesville but the, within the state of Virginia are there other areas that have used taxes specifically to get the impact they want from growth and, and development? You're asking the right question, and I, to my knowledge, the answer is no because I think that the housing conversation is just beginning to come to Richmond, and many years too late. Like I think that for the longest time members of the General Assembly largely deferred to local government on housing policy and said that is y'all's division of labor. I think in particular, as you get more younger legislators who are still trying to buy and own homes and fewer legislators who have been sitting on theirs for 40 years, there is more sensitivity to the needs of constituents who are trying to do the same. I would say paying attention to two things, the cost of housing and the cost of college is one of the biggest generational gaps between the people who have either are managing their own student loans or are trying to figure out how to put their own kids through school and the, you know, or people, both. yeah, or both. Right. Um, and so I, I think that as the general assembly has diversified in, in terms of age and, and economic background, that's one of the conversations that is finally starting to rise to the top of the priority list where it should be. Yes, to all of that. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I think you have more of a representative role in, in the General Assembly. You'll have more people who are speaking to the you know, the challenges that you know, people in my world are facing yeah. on a daily. You know, can you get to child care next? Because that would be great. Bingo. Uh, but to Jonathan's point, if you change, if you were to enable this legislation in the city, 
Do you think, and I have no idea of the, the answer, obviously, do you think that would drive more density, more attached houses onto smaller parcels? And you know, when you take away, a, like a, across from our office right now, there's a vacant lot used for parking. You know, would that be incentivized to become you know, attached housing or condos or whatever to bring more people into a city center? That's exactly the kind of goal of a, of a proposal like this. I think we all know what it's like to be walking or driving around town and, and to see some gravelly lot where you're thinking, Charlottesville's not full. Like, what, are, what are we doing with that? That feels like that could be 40 units right, right. there. And that, that's exactly the intent. And, and the question is, how do we do that in a way that incentivizes new development without unintended consequences on the tax burdens of other people. And I think that one of the most awful proposals that I've seen in some other communities that are starting to think about this is how do we do what you were describing in terms of deferred taxation for property taxes for people, longtime homeowners in this area, who have started to see their property tax burdens go through the roof mm -hmm. on a relatively modest home, like a you know a bungalow, um, and what there are there are communities that are starting to work toward deferred taxation on the incremental growth in property taxes, so that you only cash out on that when you sell, because recognizing that that land value is not liquid wealth, you can't use the money in the value of your land to pay the property tax bill that arrives in the mail. And so what do you do for families, particularly senior citizens on a fixed income who don't have some other source of, of income? I think that's the other question is how do we help, how do we do property tax relief for those families? And I know that the city already has some property tax relief programs, but I think the other component of this that deserves to be in the conversation is how do we allow people to smooth more over time and potentially defer taxes when their taxes are going up in a way that they don't also have an income stream to meet? Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. That was one of the things I was thinking about is uh, do you, uh, you know, if you implement this, do all of a sudden next week everybody's scrambling to uh, to develop their property and or sell their property. And look, we love Charlottesville. We love local and we've got some great local developers, but, you know, then does this force people to, to, this, to push to, you know, and I know there's so many, I love the conversation because it just makes you think. And I love thinking about, you know, if this, then that, what does this impact? And I know there's a, there's a lot more to talk about with it. Yeah. I mean, this, this goes to the States though, that have, have implemented the kind of, I don't want to say abolition, but the shift away from the R1 um, single unit single family development and saying, if you have a single family home, you're allowed to have a accessory dwelling unit on any property in the state. And you know what? There are not ADUs on every single property in those states and nobody's having a mad rush to do it. It provides more opportunities and more flexibility for landowners without requiring something. But it, it says to the municipality, there's an opportunity here for affordable housing to be built by individual private homeowners and to be able to utilize that if they wish to but again, it's it's still the property owner's right. And every two-acre parcel in the counties are not suddenly having ADUs popping up everywhere because the, the opportunity was made available to them. And I, and I see this as a very similar piece. It doesn't mean that every single parking lot has to have 300 homes built on it. It means there's an incentive to not leave it as unimproved property. 
it's not a speculation deal anymore. That's the big piece. And I think that's the word that we haven't said yet. Speculation. Speculation. What what this kind of taxation is designed to do is to disinvi- disincentivize mm-hmm. speculation in these like urban core precincts in the middle of a city that we have every reason to continue to believe is going to be a, a wonderful hot spot. And those are the parcels that we have to start putting to work for the people who live here now. And again, a hard question, I think, is what are the unintended consequences? I mean, if you enact this tomorrow, so actually two. One, what is the time frame for for implementation? And two, what are the unintended consequences? So the time frame for implementation is entirely about the community conversation. Right. How long does it take the, the community to decide this is something you would actually want to do? It's right. not it's not giving giving local government this option in no way says that city council is going to use it. But right. it makes the conversation real and gives us a chance to come back home and do exactly what we're doing right now. So that I put in, you couldn't put a projection on the timeline right. for implementation because it would be entirely about do people think this is a good idea? Let's let's talk it out. And then I, I think the. The biggest potential unintended consequence is just what is the redistributive burden of property taxes if you start taxing land and, and improvements at different rates? And what does that mean for people who live on land that is valuable that does not have very valuable improvements on it? So like, if you, if you think about the worst case scenario, it is somebody who is sitting on land that's valuable and that's going to be taxed at a high rate, but the building itself is not very right. valuable, and that's a modest home on a high-value parcel. And so that's the piece that I was circling back to earlier, which is what do you do potentially if if that were to happen? And let me be clear at the top, the communities that have made this switch have not seen that, but let's play it out in theory. Right. That's where I think you want to think about potential deferred property taxation for people who find themselves in that bit. Because we have to recognize that just because your land is valuable doesn't mean you have a cash stream to pay that bill. And so if you can think about deferred taxation for people in that situation so that they they pay those deferred taxes to the city if they do sell the property and cash out, I think that's the kind of proposal you could consider. Taxing is hard. This, I mean, this is, but this is a great topic, and I think what, first off, Sally, I just, I appreciate so much your time and your insight into this, because these are not conversations that are being had regularly, and I don't think, I have not heard anybody saying, if we only had this taxing authority, we would instantly change the structure of, of any municipality. But it does allow the freedom of government officials to have a discussion of, is there a better way to do things than what we're currently doing right now? And do we have the freedom to make those decisions? And in particular, I think that you know property taxes have been around for centuries, if not millennia, which is an easy way to collect revenue for governments. But when everybody needs a place to live, there are consequences of using property taxes for how many homes we have. And so I think it's important for government, which has bills to pay for staff and schools and roads to be cognizant of what the consequences are of our property tax structure for the very basic need for housing for everybody else. And so that's why I appreciate that people are having those conversations because there's just a lot of inertia around property taxes. And we know that there are all sorts of consequences of that inertia, that places with higher property values have better schools think everybody deserves a quality education we have to talk about the consequences of that and what can we do to make it right and so i i appreciate that this community is really open to thinking about 
property taxes as not just a default that we have to let keep rolling like they always have, but as part and parcel of the conversation around how do we make sure that folks can afford to, to live in this community and, and while also getting the public services that we all deserve. I think you did the closing. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate allowing us to ask, at least me to ask dumb questions because it's, it's, it's a hard thing to grasp, to figure out how we tax, how we work together and how we make us make a, a better community and better and better world for each other. So I'll say thank you, Sally. Um, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Appreciate all the time. It's great. Thanks again, to Sally Hudson, for taking the time out this morning. Uh, really appreciated the, the conversation, the time, and hope you learned something because we certainly did. Um, for y'all listening, thank you. Thanks for spending your time with us. And if you have 45 seconds, please go rate us, review us, whatever you need to do to, uh, to say you like what we do. So really appreciate it and look forward to talking to y'all next time.